guessing that most of you are aware that the six weeks leading up to Easter are referred to on the Christian liturgical calendar as Lent. Are you familiar with that? Most of you are aware of that? Yeah. Maybe you've got friends or family who observe Lent. I don't know. Maybe they give something up uh, during the Lent season. Uh, not everyone, though, who practices or who observes Lent really understands the spirit of Lent. For instance, a bartender once noticed that every evening, without fail, a guy, uh, one of his patrons came in and, and he would order three beers. And after several weeks of noticing uh, this pattern, uh, the bartender asked the guy, he said, he said why, do you, why do you always order three beers? And the man, you know, he'd have three beers in front of him. And the man said, well, I've got two brothers. They moved away to different countries. And we promised each other that we would always order uh, an extra two beers whenever we drank as a way of keeping up the family bond, as a way of remembering uh, one another. Well, several weeks later, uh, the man only ordered two beers. And so the bartender said, please accept my condolences on the death of one of your brothers, you know, the two beers and all. And the guy said, he said, you'll be happy to hear my two brothers are alive and well. It's just that I myself have decided to give up drinking for Lent. <laughs> You see, you see, do you understand that? The two beers, like two beers were for his brothers. He didn't drink the third because that would have been for him. And so he gave up drinking for Lent. Must not have been that funny. Uh, Lent is a preparatory period for Easter. It's the, the focus of Lent really is personal sin, self-examination and repentance. And so in keeping with Lent, I want to launch into a new series this morning on the subject of sin. The series is called Twisted. And this series is going to take us all the way up to Easter. And the reason I've named it Twisted is that one of the ways that the Bible describes the effect of sin on God's creation is that sin has twisted it. In other words, it has wrenched it. It has mangled it. It has distorted every aspect of God's creation. Let me give you a few examples of this from the Bible. Proverbs 12, 9 says, a man is commended according to his good sense, but one of twisted mind is despised. It's one of the effects of sin as it has twisted the human mind. Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, it's talking about Israel. They've dealt corruptly with him. They're no longer his children because they're blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. They, they're living in a way that is opposed to God. Uh, their morals have been twisted. Micah chapter 3, verse 9, speaking about the leaders of Israel. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight. In other words, they, they don't care about justice. They twist justice for their own selfish purposes. Now those are just a few examples of the way that the Bible refers to the twisting effect of sin on every aspect of God's creation. Well, for the next four weeks, I want to take you back to the very first moment that sin was introduced into the world so that you can see exactly how uh, sin twists God's original design for creation. Now, before we go back there, I just want to say, I realize that some of you are likely saying to yourself right now, this is the problem that I have with Christianity. It's primitive. It's way too focused on sin. It's demeaning. It's, it's degrading. It's, Christianity is repressive. But let me give you quickly three reasons why the study of sin is extremely practical. Here's one. You can't understand yourself unless you understand the doctrine of sin. Right? Because one of the most only the only the most self-deceived person doesn't recognize that there's something very wrong about himself or herself. For instance, how do you explain your anxiety? How do you explain your unhappiness? How do you explain your jealousy? 
How do you explain why one insult can eclipse 40 compliments? How do you explain your overcompetitiveness and why if you lose at anything, you sulk or you're irrationally angry? See, if you don't understand sin, you can't understand yourself. Here's the second reason. You can't understand what's wrong with the world unless you understand the doctrine of sin. This is why this is such a practical study. If you're trying to run a company, if you're trying to raise a family, if you're trying to lead a nonprofit organization, you need to have a working explanation of what's wrong with us. Why is it so hard for people to get along? Why do we have a propensity to fracture, to divide, to split? Why do egos get in the way? Why are some people unable to receive criticism? In other words, if you don't understand the doctrine of sin, you won't understand these things. You won't understand the world that you live in. And then finally, third, it's impossible to have hope if you don't understand the doctrine of sin. Because if you don't understand what's wrong with the world, you can't understand why Jesus Christ is the only hope of the world. You need a working understanding of sin. Now you need to know that in the early part of the 20th century, intellectual elites decided that sin, that sin as an explanation for what's wrong with the world was an outdated concept. They were like, well, there's no reason to understand the doctrine of sin. That's outdated. Because the problem with the world, they said, was that the the reason for violence and for oppression and for selfishness, the whole problem with the world is really just unjust social conditions. It's bad education. It's bad environment. And they said, well, we can change all of that. We don't have to bother with the whole doctrine of sin. That's not even real. Like That's that's repressive. That's, That's primitive. We can change everything in the world through political and social transformation, and through the progress of science. We can deal with these things. So it was a very optimistic view. Because by the end of the 20th century alone, it was clear that it was ridiculously optimistic. Because in spite of education, in spite of political and social transformation, in spite of scientific progress, the 20th century saw two world wars, the ovens of Treblinka, the killing fields of Cambodia, Vietnam, ethnic cleansing in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and on and on. The 20th century, despite how evolved we saw saw ourselves, the 20th century was the most violent, the bloodiest century in all of human history. And the reason that education and scientific progress and political and social transformation, the reason that those didn't solve humanity's problems is that our problem is spiritual. We are sinners. And if you don't understand this, you can't understand yourself, you can't understand the world you live in, and you will never have hope. At best, you will only have an unrealistic optimism. So this is a very practical study. And so with that in mind, I want to go back to the very first moment that sin was introduced into the world. If you have a Bible this morning, uh, go uh, back to it, uh, go to it, go to the first book of the Bible in your Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3. Go to the first book, Genesis chapter 3. And just, you know, for those of you who might not know the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, uh, well, they describe the perfect world that God originally created. And then chapter 3 describes what went wrong with the world, how the world came to be so twisted, the world that we live in today. Now, just let me, one more, one last word before we look into this chapter. I realize that many people have a lot of questions about the first three chapters of the Bible. You know, like, was the earth created in just six days? 
Uh, Was there really a talking serpent in the Garden of Eden? Uh, You're not wrong for asking those questions. And you need to know, too, that good conservative, Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christian scholars differ in their views on these chapters, too. But you need to know that the disagreement is not about whether these chapters are inspired by God or whether the Bible is inerrant or whether the theology of these chapters is, is, is accurate. The disagreement is really only about the genre of literature that these chapters fit into. So, for instance, were these, were these chapters like a modern-day news report reporting everything that happened exactly the way it happened? Or were these chapters mimicking other ancient genres, forms of literature? So that's, that's the question. It's not whether, the, whether it's inspired and inerrant. It's about what kind of literature does Genesis 1 through 3 represent? Now, look, I don't have time today to delve deeply into that subject. So for the purpose of this series, can we simply agree that regardless of whether the author of Genesis was trying to write a point-by-point factual history of the account of creation or not, can we just agree that theology, that the theology of this account is accurate and consistent with the rest of the Bible, and that we can understand uh, what God wanted us to understand about creation and, and the introduction of sin in the world? We can understand it, even though it doesn't answer all of our questions. Can we just agree on that this morning, that we can understand it, that the, that the theology is good and, we, and it's consistent with the rest of the Bible. Can we agree with that? Can we agree with that? Good, good, good. All right. Let's read from Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 1. Now the serpent, uh, by the way, later in the Bible we learned that this serpent was Satan. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat? fruit from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You won't certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And we know from the rest of the passage, and we'll see this in the coming weeks, that Eve indeed did eat the fruit from the tree and gave the fruit to Adam and he ate too. And as we will see, death and destruction and chaos uh, were the result. Now, what we're going to see this morning is the origin of sin. We're going we're to look at the cause of sin today. And here's the overarching principle about sin that I want you to see in the remainder of our time this morning. Here it is, that sin is the result of twisted ideas about the character of God. Sin is the result of twisted ideas about the character of God. Now, that's interesting because I said earlier that the effect of sin in the world, sin twists God's original design for creation. It is warped. It is mangled every aspect of God's creation. But what we're seeing here is that the cause of the sin and the the cause of sin is also twisting, that it twisted ideas about who God is, okay? So not only the effect of sin is is a twisting, but Satan twists ideas about God, and that's the origin of sin. Okay, so let me show you how he does this. First, Satan plants doubts about God's truthfulness. He plants doubts about God's truthfulness. Look at what he does. He says, did God really say? Now, 
you can hear the incredulity in his voice. Did God really say that? I mean, that's ridiculous that God would say something like that. You, you can hear that in his voice here. You're going to see in a moment that this is only the starting point. In the end, Satan is going to flat out deny God's truthfulness. But at this point, he's just introducing doubt. And when he introduces doubt, here's what, here's what ends up happening. He smuggles in an idea, a twisted idea. And here's the idea. The idea is that man is the arbiter of what is true, not God. Did God really say? So doubt. And so man is the arbiter of what is true, not God. Now, does that idea sound familiar to to you? That man is the arbiter of truth, not God? Um, It's one of the main ideas behind postmodernism, which is the prevailing uh, sort of idea or philosophy uh, of our culture. Until the Renaissance... Uh, God was considered the center of the universe and the determiner of truth. But with the philosopher Rene Descartes came the idea that man is the center of the universe and the center of truth. Anybody remember what Descartes said? He said, I think, therefore, I am. That idea was developed over time by philosophers like Immanuel Kant into the idea that truth is relative to every person. There's no absolute objective source of truth. Truth is relative to every person. I determine what is true for me. You determine what is true for you, which is why you hear people today saying things like, well, he's just telling his truth. She's just living her truth. The great theologian Oprah Winfrey said last year at the Golden Globe ceremony that, quote, speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we have. It's a very postmodern statement, you see, and it's an idea whose derivation is from this passage from Satan's very words to Eve. It's amazing to realize that that postmodernism isn't a new idea at all. It started way back here in the Garden of Eden. Man is the arbiter of truth. I decide what's true for me. You can decide what's true for you. But there's no objective source, no objective place that we can find truth. There's no objective God that determines what truth is. Now, the problem with that, of course is that if there is no such thing as absolute truth, if you decide what truth is and I decide what my truth is, on what basis can anyone say, for example, that racism is wrong? I mean, I can say racism is wrong for me, but you might disagree. You can't say, on the one hand, all human beings are equal in dignity and rights. You can't say that, and then on the other hand say, Every person must construct his own moral values, his own truth. Because who says that all human beings are equal in dignity and right? Like if there's no objective, absolute truth that says that, I might disagree with you. I might say, look, you know, minorities are not equal to the rest, to the majority. And how can you disagree with me? That's my truth even though your truth may be different. How do we come up? How do we we say that something like racism is wrong if there is no objective standard of what truth is? That's the problem. How could you argue with any authority that apartheid in South Africa was wrong, for example? 
How could you argue that ethnic cleansing in whatever places in the world it occurs is wrong? A world without, tr- without absolute truth, without a standard of absolute truth, is incomprehensible. It would be chaos. Every man and woman doing what is right in his or her own eyes. There has to be an objective, absolute source of truth to say that anything is right or anything is definitively wrong. But you see, Satan has convinced us of the idea that man is the arbiter of what is true, not God. And that twistedness is where sin begins. Because once I believe that I determine what's right and wrong for myself, God is no longer the authority over my life. I am. I do what pleases me. That's where sin begins, you see. Satan casts doubts on God's truthfulness. And it ushers in this idea that man is the arbiter of what is true, not God. Here's the second, here's the second way that Satan twists um, ideas about who God is. He, he plants doubt about God's goodness in Eve's mind. So he plants doubts about God's goodness. Uh, look at the last part of verse 1. He says, did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Okay, now, to understand what Satan is doing here, we've got to go back to chapter 2 to understand uh, what God actually said. So in chapter 2, God gives Adam and Eve, he gives them a permission, he gives them a prohibition, and then he gives them a warning. Here's the permission. He says to them, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Like you can eat from any of them. Okay. He gives them, that's free will, right? He's giving them free will, saying you got all the freedom in the world. You can eat from any tree in the garden. But then he gives them a prohibition. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat from any tree, but don't. Why? Here's the warning. Because when you eat from that tree, when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, that's what God said. Free to eat any tree. Don't eat from the one in the, uh, the, the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, because if you do, bad things, okay? That's what he's saying. Now, I want you to notice that there are two tactics here that Satan uses to plant doubts about God's goodness. The first tactic is that he shifts the orientation of God's command, okay? He says, here's what he asks. He sa- Satan asks, did God say you must not eat? Now, what is that? Well, that's a negative orientation. It's focused on what God said that they couldn't do, right? There's no mention of the fact that God said you're free. No no mention of of the permission God gave them. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. No mention of that. Satan wants Eve's focus to be only on what God tells them that they must not do. What he wants Eve to think is that God is negative. He's freedom stealing. He's repressive. Okay. And then second, I want you to notice that the second way that he plants doubts here about God's goodness is that he exaggerates God's command. Now again, what did God say? God said, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, uh, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One tree. Eat from any of them, but don't eat from that one. Because if you do, you'll certainly die. Now, what does Satan say? Here's what Satan says. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree 
in the garden? That's not what God said. God didn't say you can't eat from any tree in the garden. God said you can eat from all of them. Don't eat from one, because if you do, you'll die. But you're free to eat from any of them. That's not what Satan said. What Satan is doing is that he's, he's radically exaggerating what God actually said. And he's doing it so that he can smuggle in this twisted idea. And here's the, here's the idea that, he, that he's smuggling in. If you let God be your king, if you let him be your authority, you are in for a repressive, joyless, severe, austere life. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Let God be your king. He's going to take all the fun away. Let God be your authority. Oh, man, you're going to be miserable. Because he's the policeman in the sky. Just always look. He's the moral policeman in the sky. Just looking for all the stuff you do wrong. Because he's negative. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Eve, ever so subtly, enters into that idea. Notice what she says. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. Now wait, 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 wait. Is that what God said? We may eat fruit from trees in the garden. He said, he said you can eat, you're free to eat from any, you're free. You're free to eat fruit from any tree in the garden. That's what he actually said. Then she says, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. Now, wait a minute. God didn't say anything about not touching the tree. He just said, don't eat from it. And so what you see here is that Eve is subtracted. She's subtracted from the extent of God's permission. You know, God said, God said you're free to eat from any tree. She doesn't include that. She says, We're free to eat from trees, not any tree. We can eat from trees. So he subtract, she's subtracted from his permissiveness. And then she adds to, she exaggerates the prohibition by saying, and you must not touch it. So she's, she's now focused on the negative and she's made the negative worse. How successful would you say Satan has been in convincing people that if you let God be your king, if you let God be the authority for your life, you're in for a repressive, joyless, severe, austere life. How successful would you say that he's been in it? And, you know, I tell you, what's, what's, here's what's fascinating, is that God is doing the opposite of, of being repressive and joyless and, and severe and austere. Think of it this way, okay? Think of it this way. He's saying... You can eat fruit from any tree of the garden. Just don't eat from that one tree, and you can live on any of the Caribbean islands you want to forever. But if you eat from that tree, you'll have to live in Detroit. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm gonna, I want to give you, I don't want you to have to live in Detroit. I want to give you the Caribbean. Is that positive? Is that repressive? No, it's not repressive. Nobody wants to live in Detroit. Everyone wants to live in the Caribbean. That's not repressive, it's positive. But that's not what Satan does. That's not what Eve believed. And it's not what most people in our culture believe here. And you know, you know why I say that? Uh, because working in my job, it is fascinating 
Actually, it's terribly sad. The prevalence of, how, of, of legalistic forms of Christianity. How many people have been exposed to that? How many people have been crippled by that? How many people have been warped by this twisted view of God? It is terribly sad in which people's entire lives are oriented around avoiding sin. Like they're not focused on how good God is and they're not focused on on living for him and and all the freedom that comes with that and and how liberating that is. They're not focused on that. They're always focused on, oh man, I got to stop sinning. I got to stop sinning. I keep doing this over and over. I am a worm. I'm terrible. I got to stop sinning. I got to stop sinning. And the way that people tend to try to stop sinning is by exaggerating the severity of God's command. So let me give you some examples of that. Uh, the Bible says that women should dress modestly. Well, you know what that becomes? You know how people exaggerate that? Women can't wear pantsuits. Women can't wear dresses that fall above their knees. And women cannot show any skin. What's that? That's exaggerating God's command. Don't eat from the tree and you must not touch it. Dress modestly and you must not. Here's another one. The command to not get drunk becomes you cannot drink. What are they doing? They're exaggerating God's command. God didn't say you can't drink. He said, don't get drunk. This is doing exactly what Eve is doing, right? You can't eat from the tree and don't touch the tree. You can't get drunk and don't drink. The command to not have sex outside of marriage becomes you cannot dance because somehow if you dance, you will have sex. That's an automatic, isn't it? Isn't that just an automatic? You dance, you're going to have sex. I'm telling you, the way I dance would not lead to sex. I promise you. It would lead to the opposite of sex. It would lead to like, I don't want near you. You're weird. That's creepy. That's what that would lead to. All of those are examples of a negative orientation and an exaggeration of the severity of God's commands. And you see what happens when you accept the idea that God is repressive and that he is severe, that he isn't good. What happens is that you begin to resent God's commands and you begin to resent his authority over your life. And once that happens, as you're going to see next week, contempt and rebellion aren't far behind. Sin, then, is the result, you see, of twisted ideas about the character of God, about his truthfulness, about his goodness. That's what it is. Sin is the result of these twisted ideas because resentment and contempt set in. And then when those set in, next comes rebellion. Here's the third. Here's the third way that Satan twists ideas about God. I want you to notice in this passage that Satan rejects the holiness of God. Verse 4. You will not. Okay, so first, remember at the beginning, he just doubted God's truthfulness. Now he's flat out rejecting. You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, God's holding back on you. He's holding back on you. He's not good. He's not truthful. He's holding back on you. Because he knows that when, you're, when you eat from it, your eyes are going to be open. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. What's he saying? God's a liar. 
That's what he's saying. God's a liar. Just a fundamental rejection of God's holiness. And with this, he smuggles in this twisted idea. The way to liberation is to reject God's authority. The way to liberation is to reject God's authority. He's holding back. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to know good from evil. He does not want you to reach your potential. He doesn't want you to to become all that you could be. He's a liar who cannot be trusted. And so the best way for you to be liberated as a person, to, to maximize your potential, is to reject his authority over your life. And let me ask you again, how deeply has that idea penetrated the culture that we live in? And how, let me just get more personal. How deeply has that idea penetrated your own life? Like, let me ask you something. How many of you really believe that, how many of you really believe God, that that giving away money in staggering amounts is the key to real liberation, like real joy and real happiness. How many of you believe that? Like give money away in staggering amounts and you will be free. How many of you believe that? How many of you believe, how many of you believe God when he says that sexual purity is the key to real liberation? How many of you believe that? This, This idea, God's holding out on you, man. He's holding out on you. He does not want you to have anything good. He does not want you to maximize your potential as a person. So you got to get out from underneath his authority. He's a liar. It's a powerful idea. There's this song uh, that we often sing here, and it's called uh, I Surrender All, and the chorus goes like this. You thought I was going to sing, didn't you? I'm not going to sing. It goes like this. I surrender all, I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Nathaniel was talking about one of the songs we sang earlier this morning, and he's talking about how that that was an aspirational song. And many worship songs are, and what what, what he means by aspirational is just that, that that's something I aspire to, but in reality, I don't really do that. Like, like I want to be the kind of person, I'm talking about me, I genuinely want to be the kind of person that surrenders all to God, but in reality, I don't. And the reason I don't, frankly, is that this idea that Satan tempted Eve with, this twisting, it's got a hold of me too. I'm afraid of what he'll do. Like if I surrender everything to, if I surrender my money, will he, will he make me poor? <laughs> like if I surrender my family, will he, what will he do? And will he take them? Will he let them die? If I surrender my career, will he make me be a missionary in some terrible part of the world? Can you hear it? Do you hear that idea? If you really want to be liberated, if you really want to realize your potential, if you want your kids to realize their potential, you got to get out from underneath God's authority because he's bad. He's a liar. He's not truthful. He's not good. He's, he's a liar. That's how sin entered the world. Satan twisted Eve's ideas 
about the character of God, and he smuggled in twisted ideas about reality. And not only is that how sin entered the world, but you need to understand that it's the root of every one of your sins, every one of my sins. The inability to trust God, to believe that he's good, to believe that he is holy. That's the root of every one of your sins. Satan's power over you exists to the extent that you believe those ideas. Because if you do, you will rebel against God. Uh, The 17th century uh, American philosopher and theologian Jonathan Edwards put it this way. He said, the ideas and the images in men's minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern them. Does that surprise you? Does that surprise you? Does it surprise you that what what really Satan's greatest power, the, the way that he entices you into evil, it's not just by dangling something in front of you, it's by the ideas that he has that he has put inside of you. And the way, you know how you know how they came to be inside of you? Because once they entered, once Adam and Eve bought them, once they ate, well, they're the, they're the, you know, they're the sort of the progenitors of the human race. And so once they entered them, then they've been transmitted down to every one of, every one of us. And the reason that these ideas sound so familiar is because they're in you. You have the propensity to believe every one of those ideas. And that's where your sin comes from. That's where Satan's power is. There's no other kind of power. Satan attacks us not with his fangs, but with his falsehoods. Your actions, your sin is a consequence of the ideas that you have about God, twisted ideas that have, that have been a part of you from birth. So now the question is, what do you do with this? Well, let me suggest two implications for your life with this. The first is, you must root out the false ideas by which you live Ideas, many of them are ideas you don't even know you live by. And you have to replace those with true ideas. And the only way that you can do that is by being intentional about learning what the Bible says. The Bible is the absolute truth. It is the source of absolute truth about the world. And so when you come here on a Sunday morning, bring a Bible with you, for goodness sake, and take notes. Like, I, you know, if, you, if you're a writer, you know, like I am, write your notes. If you like to put them in your digital form and you can do that fast, I can't type that fast. But if you can do it that fast, put them, put them in here. Take notes and then go home and review them. Ask God that afternoon. Surface the false ideas that I've been living by and God replace them with true ideas. The Apostle Paul once said in the New Testament, don't conform to the pattern of this world. By pattern, he's talking about the way people live on the basis of the ideas they have. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the ideas that you live by. He understood that the power Satan has over us is through the twisted ideas that dominate our mind. So you've got to learn. Okay, how many of you are involved in a, in a city life group where you get a chance to go and be a part of a small group of people who are studying the Bible together? How many of you are involved in something like that? If you're not, you need to get in one. Here's why. It's dangerous the way you're living. It's dangerous. You, you know what it's like? If you say, you know what, the Bible's out there, but I don't really care. Uh, I don't really care. I'm not going to learn it. You know what it's like? It's like, it's like saying, I'm going to drive down the road with my eyes closed. It's that dangerous. You need to get into the scriptures. 
You need to learn. Get serious about it. Get intentional about it. Take notes. Read. Get involved in a city life group. Because it's dangerous not to. Because you've got ideas that are running on the hard drive of your mind that you don't even know are there, that are false and that are destructive. Here's the second application. When you're tempted to doubt the character of God, look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's there that God's truthfulness and his goodness and his holiness are vindicated. For centuries prior to the cross, God had been promising that he would send a Messiah who would rescue the world. And this Messiah would pay for human sin and redeem God's creation. At the cross, God, in the person of Jesus, died. God said to Eve, what was it, what was it he said to Eve would be the punishment for their sin? If they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what's going to happen, did he say to Eve? You will surely die. But in reality, God in the person of Jesus died on a tree for your sin and for mine. Just as God had promised, he's truthful. God's goodness was vindicated at the cross. Let me ask you something. What king would die for rebellious servants? Only Christ the king would do that. God's holiness was vindicated at the cross. And he didn't just wink at sin. He didn't say, you'll surely die. But nah, you're, nah, let's not do that. He didn't do that. He punished sin at the cross in the person of Jesus. In his mercy, he took the punishment. So mercy and God's justice kiss at the cross. His holiness is vindicated there at the cross. When you're tempted to doubt God's truthfulness, his goodness and his holiness, look to the cross. Remember the cross. One of the things I often say is preach the gospel to yourself. You have to keep reminding yourself of the truth and the goodness and the holiness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Preach it to yourself, even in the midst of temptation. Sin's origin occurred in the Garden of Eden. But sin's power was destroyed at the cross of Jesus Christ because there, every twisted idea was crushed about who God is and about how he works in the world. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Lord, we acknowledge our propensity to believe these twisted ideas about your truthfulness and about uh, your goodness and about your holiness. We, we all have these. They're all part of us, Lord. We acknowledge that. And Lord, if we examine our sin closely enough, we will see that somewhere along the line, it's, a, it's, the, it's the unwillingness to believe truth that is the source of our sin. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the cross as it vindicates, as it validates everything that God says about himself. It validates his truthfulness, his goodness, his holiness. So Lord, I pray that you would give us a hunger here today for truth. That we would become people who want to know it, who want to live by it, who want to uproot all of the false ideas that, that, that run our lives, that we've learned from our culture that we would unlearn those ideas, that we want to unlearn those and we would replace them with new ideas, true ideas from your scripture. There was nobody else that could have died on a cross 
There's nobody else that could have paid for the sin of humanity. Buddha couldn't do it. Muhammad couldn't do it. They were human beings. They're sinners. I couldn't do it. No one here could do it. We're all sinners. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can do it. Only you, Lord Jesus. And we thank you for what you've done for us and how you've redeemed us at the cross. Let us be people who look to the cross and preach the cross to ourselves and who boast in the cross. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.